you. Right. Well, welcome to this Eurobytes. Um, the year 2022 just starts being very interesting. And in terms of predictions that didn't age well, I have to admit particularly myself and how it estimated Putin to be the chess player, but not just myself, with me and a number of other foreign policy analysts. We were way off. And today we're going to analyze maybe why that was. And even with us having been so very wrong, um, we're going to look into how the propaganda war is playing out right now and how new narratives and myths are born. And with that being said, Lucas, do you want to um, have a couple of initial thoughts for, for all yeah, of us? Of course. of course. First of all, hello and thanks for being part of Eurobytes once again. Hi, Todd. Hi, Christian. So after all our predictions about Mr. Putin, the chess player, didn't age well, as Christian said, we're now already in day 10 of his military campaign. So in a way, the chess player Putin actually did deliver to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Boris Johnson, and Justin Trudeau the war they exactly apparently needed. Now, there's nothing that we would like to defend about the act of attacking a sovereign country or invading a sovereign country. At the same time, we mentioned the fog of war and the propaganda machine, and we're going to talk about it in a bit more depth today. So if COVID and the Canadian truckers were all the rage in the world just 10 days ago, now it all has been cured and solved. So one could as well say Dr. Putin's misadventure saved us all from COVID. As always, when public opinion swings one way in our modern age, celebrities opining on matters outside their sphere of comments are never far away. Patricia Arquette called for kicking Russia out of NATO, truly elevating the discourse. Dan Abbott, one of UK's um, not-so-smartest uh, MPs, lamented Russia's invasion into Croatia. Well, yeah, Croatia's just a thousand miles away, but take another guess. So what we're seeing since is we're talking about 5,000 German helmets being delivered last time we met. Now, this actually turned into several hundreds of anti-tank and stinger missiles coming out of Germany and the promise to actually live up the 2% GDP defense spending goal. One funny thing to mention, Germany is actually um, sending old missiles like anti-aircraft missiles from um, NVA, that is the communist German army's um, old storages, and they many of them turned out to be so moldy that the uh, soldiers who were actually supposed to um, get into the warehouses had to wear special protective gear to, to not get sick from all the mold in the boxes. <laughs> so that tells you a lot about the German exports. But anyway, some days after Germany was refusing to do just about anything, and keep in mind, two weeks ago, we thought that Nord Stream 2 was still a thing, and we thought that Russia remaining in SWIFT without any complications was still a thing. Now, they've all been sanctions out. But keep in mind, they're not completely out of SWIFT because Germany somehow still needs to pay millions and millions of euros every day just for their oil and their gas, as does the US. So what a change of heart. Even Germany's vice chancellor, Robert Habeck, now wants to allow Germany's, well, bad thing, the nuclear power plant, to run just a little longer. You, especially for you as the American audience, that's been the cornerstone of German Green Party policy to abolish all nuclear power as soon as possible. 
So at the same time, weird knee-jerk reactions against Russian athletes and artists are noticeable, such as Russian soprano and Russian conductor being laid off or basically canceled in Berlin, Munich, for once having honored Putin. These are interesting days, and let me just round it all off with one thing. What we see in Germany nowadays is there's also a lot of um, discrimination against um, people who are born in Russia or have Russian roots. So it's it's interesting to see that the German embassy in South Africa was so strong and calling out against the Russian embassy in South Africa, quoting that they actually have experience in national socialism and in handling their history. Well it seems like many Germans um, are kind of stepping into that same bad thing again. But Todd, you're the man on the ground. So <laughs> you've been to Ukraine, you've been to Poland. What are the observations you've made? And like, does it all, does it all match up with what the media say? Well, uh, I have to admit also, I was extremely wrong. I did not think Putin would move uh, past. I, th I thought he would, you know, move to the forward line of troops in Donbass and and secure that area and make that part of Russia essentially and move on. Uh, but he did not. He did obviously move much farther to Kiev, uh, which was one of our three scenarios we talked about, uh, but just was we thought was unlikely. That being said, uh, the people, Kiev was very calm in the beginning for several days. I left the later of the day of the invasion, and uh, you know there were airstrikes going on around me and uh, targets being hit around Kiev. Uh, we fled about 150 miles west to a town uh, in western Kiev, uh, small, not a decent-sized town, but there was infrastructure nearby. So I spent like the the next 72 hours in a bomb shelter, uh, dodging cruise missiles as <laughs> as uh, they tried to destroy some stuff nearby, and lots of partisan activity on the ground with saboteurs, and it was very interesting. And then we went south to Moldova just because we thought some paratroopers were landing. Uh, in that area uh, towards Lviv. So we ended up crossing the Moldovan border. And interestingly enough, the, the the people who helped, when I walked across into Moldova, the first people who met me were a group of Russian Baptists, <laughs> which I thought was oh, just God. a bizarre twist on all of this. And they, they got me, uh, they had like a Pony Express set up for people that they wanted to help. And they got me to uh, Yash, Romania, where I took a flight to Bucharest and, and on. But so the people on the ground were extremely helpful. I was shocked actually at how uh, how bent on helping people they were, the, the Ukrainians uh, and then the you know the Russians in Moldova. And uh, interesting, another interesting thing, which you know Russia or Europe has become such a secular place, but there was a strong uh, I guess thread moving through all these people they were all extremely uh religious christians so that to me i thought was extremely interesting uh on the ground but you know the ukrainians were the men of the towns were grabbing their hunting rifles and guarding the infrastructure of the towns uh they're all ready to defend their homeland i i think this has united ukraine it's it's pulled the Nazis and the globalists and the just regular Ukrainians all together, and they're they're focused on getting rid of Russia. So it's it was an extremely interesting time. But other than that, that's about all I can say as far as what I saw on the ground. Right. Well, thank, thank you. you. And, and just just in terms of trying to tease out a couple of bits before we have a mm -hmm. bit of a deep dive in how we got there, which is not uninteresting, and how a lot of people try to gloss that over. But um, Talk sort of what you saw. Um, what did 
and obviously the the portrayal in Western media, and even when I've I've, I've talked to to differentiate otherwise differentiated friends and family, and they all point out, oh, it's so um, indiscriminate the attacks, and mm -hmm. it's so it's such a mm -hmm. wanton bit of destruction. Would that square with what you'd seen? Obviously, you had you know, bombs and cruise missiles around you, yeah. but obviously, would it would that fall under the category to be expected in war? Or is, is there a deliberate or wanton element um, that, well, look, the, that you could discern? The, the initial uh, reports were that Russia was using small unit tactics instead of, you know, they have a heavy advantage in uh, powerful weapon, you know, whether it be uh, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, uh, air, air, air power, and they weren't using it. And, and to the detriment of their own troops, they were having guys get killed because to take a target, they'd send a squad of infantry against it instead of bombing it with, with an airstrike. So that was one initial reaction. It was very surgical. All the uh, targets were very surgical. Something changed a few days in, and you started seeing pictures of, uh, you know, like grad rocket attacks on the apartment buildings, which are really anti-personnel, just carpet bomb the area. They're not guided munitions. Uh, and, and, they, and the Kremlin did announce we're going to target uh, intelligence and other centers in the cities, and they started hitting those with, you know, guided munitions. I don't know who is firing the grads uh, on the apartments. Uh, I, I think it may, you know, one thing is noticeable is that Putin, as I said in the beginning, really doesn't have the force structure to occupy Ukraine for a long period of time. It's a huge country. <clears throat> he has troops, but he can't project power that far for that long and sustain it. So, you know, it's 40 million people and he may take some cities, but he's not going to occupy the whole country. So the question is, he had to start using other troops. There was rumors of Belarusian troops being involved, uh, that he asked Kazakhstan to get involved, who they refused. And um, he, in the Chechens, he sent, you know, allegedly 10,000 Chechens who are kind of wild, undisciplined, very violent, very cruel. So... Who knows? It may have been the Chechens just firing. You know, there's videos of Grad rocket attacks and being fired and then laughing. It, that could have been, I don't know if it was Russian troops or Chechen troops or what, or who was not uh, following, you know, basically losing their discipline as far as fire control. So, and there's also reports of Ukrainians maybe shelling some of their own cities for a PR effort. Um, but there is definitely, uh, you know, fire onto apartment buildings. It's not wanton destruction. But they're, you know, it's just not, that's not true. First of all, they don't have enough troops for that. And they're not using their air power at all, actually. They've lost a lot of aircraft. And weirdly enough, they haven't established air superiority, even though they have the force to do that. So it's allowing Ukrainian aircraft to continue to fire on Russian troops, um, which is weird to a lot of people. We don't really understand that. Maybe they don't want to commit. Maybe they're worried. Maybe they don't have the parts. Maybe they don't you know, they're not as ready, don't have the readiness levels they need. We just don't know. But I don't think it's as wanton as the media is trying to portray. And I think this is an interesting bit, and I'm going to press one point. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, to the viewers and listeners, when we are saying, hey, let's compare it with X, Y, Z, we're not excusing mm -hmm. anything. I mean, sort mm -hmm. of the one thing where Putin and all of us uh, fooled is we did account for a certain immorality on his part but we never accounted for stupidity which, yeah. which it really is and we're not excusing any invasion i mean this is 
yeah. you know, we, we shouldn't need to say so, but given that that's where the discussion is, if you try to be differentiated, you're a Russian show, we're not. Um, but there's one interesting thing, and I'm not engaging in whataboutism, mm -hmm. but I'm trying to compare it with similar invasions. Mm -hmm. And let's take a look mm -hmm. at similar invasions in terms of overwhelming air power, but not followed up by a ground campaign would have been mm -hmm. the 1999 um, Kosovo campaign by now right. and right. the 2003 Iraq shock and awe. Mm -hmm. The stories that I'm hearing, and that's about the only data point that's verifiable because the rest is fog of war and propaganda mm -hmm. from both sides. But the only uniting element is electricity by and large seems to be on in mm -hmm. the centers because otherwise people wouldn't be able to tweet and uh, uh, and comment on the internet. Yes. Heating seems to be on. And I'm like, this is different. And I mean, I've heard American, uh, old American Air Force generals com um, mm. commenting on that, saying, well, if that was our campaign, the lights would be out in Kiev. Yeah. The lights would be yeah. out in Lviv. And um, this is certainly what NATO did in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia in 1999, particularly if once it became um, abundantly clear that militarily the NATO campaign wasn't terribly effective. So that's mm -hmm. when they started taking out Serbian infrastructure. And Iraq, well, it was shock and awe and boom, everything was off. That's not what we are seeing. So mm -hmm. um, I think there is, and, and you, you can confirm that indeed, as long as you were there, um, infrastructure was still working, be that water, be that electricity. Yeah, I had no, no issues. Of course, I didn't stay in Kiev more than eight hours after the bombing started, 12 hours maybe at the most. So then I was outside the city, but... I don't, you know, you're right. Everybody, communications are up. So people are able to communicate. They are, you know, living in subways in Kiev. I mean, that is, seems to be true. But, uh, but, and they are bombing targets in Kiev. I don't think it's indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate in Kharkiv and some of the other areas. Uh, but I don't, and maybe on the outskirts of Kiev, but I don't think it's indiscriminate in the city center. Um, probably a couple of thoughts from my side, uh, two personal thoughts, um, mm -hmm. and then sort of to, to explain to an American audience how mm -hmm. interesting for me as a Western European this is and sort of the blind spots that we have in a lot of ways. So first of all, on a, on a personal note, um, 2006, I engaged in one last glorious maneuver of what was then called a, a home protection battalion of the German army, de facto something like national God and we uh, ran a pretty Cold War style maneuver, both uh, as a sort of um, tactical operation center, like simulated and partially with troops. And whoever designed that maneuver must have known something, because what I'm seeing right now is sort of the simultaneous attack by armored vehicles everywhere, mm -hmm. paratroopers for for good uh, mixture in there, and the confusion that comes from that was exactly what was in the maneuver. So I cannot highlight enough if you're actually in a mm -hmm. tactical operation center and you get all the weird radio messages in and uh, there are tanks coming from here and mm -hmm. uh, fighter bomber there and by the way you've got paratroopers in your rear and mm -hmm. if you don't attend to those right away you're never getting rid of them and um, so whoever designed that so much as our um, intelligence agencies in the west got flack somebody must have gotten something right because i stand very much reminded <laughs> on that maneuver then we come to an interesting bit so that whole land almost of the land time forgot around romania Moldova, a couple of years ago, shamefully, I didn't even know that was a country, let alone mm -hmm. the complications with its eastern part, Transnistria. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, 
when you told me the story about the Russian Baptists, it brought me mm -hmm. back. So I had a wonderfully wonderful military chaplain in the German army, a Capucinian monk, and he gave me this book, um, World War II, by a Catholic military chaplain. Mm. And he was so surprised at the early days of the German military campaign in Ukraine, how many uh, of the local civilians, as him, as a military chaplain, that saw the cross around his neck, came to him and had their kids baptized because that couldn't be done under mm. um, communism. So, I mean, it's a deeply, mm. deeply religious area that we know so little about. And as you said, I mean, even even um, demo demographics that we didn't even know that were there, such as Russian Baptists and probably mm -hmm. even some Mennonites in R Romania and, and you throw mm -hmm. it in the mix. It's, 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 it's such an interesting area out of time um, that for us as Western Europeans, we know shamefully little about. Um, probably um, to, to find the segue, like for us probably to remind ourselves where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to uh, title this chapter the reverse Midas touch mm -hmm. of Western diplomacy I mean, so just mm. for for the 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 fans of uh, uh, classical mythology King Midas I think was a Persian king or whatever he he wished whatever he touched turned into gold and that didn't turn out to be too good for him because you can't eat a golden apple be that as it may sort of West what Western diplomacy has touched be that Ukraine be that Iraq be that Afghanistan be that Syria be that Libya and we can continue that list it didn't go too well for these countries and now we want to see in the whole bit I mean there is quite a bit of the narrative of haha did you see now that it would have been good to uh, to get Russia uh, to get Ukraine into NATO because otherwise they wouldn't have attacked and that that's the narrative sort of the old western narrative of more of it double down <laughs> And if we quickly look back, and then let's have a um, discussion about it. So let, let's see where all that 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 current bit started. Obviously, we couldn't can put it right at the end of the Cold War, 1991, and then the first the Baltic states being accepted into NATO, then Hungary, then Romania, um, Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, and Russia at that time was impotent to do anything about it. But they seemed to say, okay, look, this is something we're willing to swallow, especially as none of these countries has designs on Russian territory. And then there was 2008, the um, NATO summit in Bucharest, where the message verbatim was Georgia, not Georgia, southern United States, but Georgia in the Caucasus region, mm -hmm. and Ukraine, um, these countries will become members of NATO. And Russia at that time made it abundantly clear, look, we were willing to live with all these other places being accepted into NATO, even though you guys at the time said you wouldn't, but fair enough. But we're not going to tolerate that. And then soon mm. enough, Russia had a swift military campaign in Georgia and uh, made it abundantly clear, no, this is, this is not going to fly. And then they did the same with Ukraine. And obviously then there were the famous Winter Olympics in Sochi in the Caucasus region and shortly thereafter, Putin. And again, I'm making a case from, uh, not from a moral perspective, but from a, a realpolitik perspective, brilliantly improvised, and then quickly uh, snatched uh, uh, Crimea, mm -hmm. um, established a presence in eastern Ukraine. And by that point, it should have been abundantly clear to everybody that this is where they drew the line. And I mean, interestingly enough, um, there were even like some hot microphone takes by Barack Obama, where he said, you know, can, can you tell Putin that he needs to lay off for a bit until I'm re-elected and you know it was mm -hmm. fundamentally fine that the US administration at that time was not going to do anything and was even 
sort of okay with it as long as Putin laid off on them in, in other respects. And then obviously we see the Maidan. Well, do we want to call it an insurrection? If you apply the same standards, you had a democratically elected president and with a lot of Western intelligence involvement. That's not even conspiracy theory. That was abundantly clear yeah. to everybody at that time. As I said, I had a friend who worked for a non-governmental organization helping with democratization and rule of law in Ukraine. And I mean, even he said, well, there were some of the money flow was a bit too conspicuous where it came yeah. from. And so he suspects agency money having gone into that. So we, again, we had a situation of a democratically elected president being overthrown. And then since then, um, you know, with um, Crimea being absorbed and everything, um, we, we had the situation where um, it was on the one hand, it should have been abundantly clear it should have been abundantly clear to the West, Russia wasn't going to stand for it. And um, well, then, then interesting enough, it never went away. And um, even the Russians for years being very consistent on this point, saying this is where we draw the line, we kept mm -hmm. pushing, pushing. And probably, and before I open that discussion, we need to remember one thing. Whenever the West had these sort of interventions. We were never subject to the consequences. The United States, and I think a great military thinker once said, the greatest defense assets of the United States are the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean and peaceful neighbors to the, to the south and to the north. And with that, you guys were never consequences of your own doing Western Europe, not quite to the same degree, but relatively safe. And um, and obviously, whenever countries were entirely mucked up, be that Iraq, be that Syria, be that Afghanistan, be that now Ukraine, it has paid a terrible price for this constant Western teasing. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to come into the fold and we're going to sure. deal with the Russians and such. They have paid a terrible price. And then at the same time, we never empathize with the other side. And I mean, before, let's remember Cuba. The Cubans, when they were willing to station missiles on Cuba, um, in 1962, there are still sanctions on Cuba, like now, um, uh, 50 years uh, later. And I mean, how do, did we think the Russians were going to react? And again, not saying that that's that's how they should have reacted. And and by the way, and then one last anecdote, and I give, give it to you guys: the Russians, whenever we needed them, they were super cooperative. I remember when I was in the German Army Officers' School. Um, a couple of snipers told us the first maps they had with the German army going into Afghanistan were all in Russian. The mm -hmm. Russians provide whatever they had, they gave to us. They were willing to help. And then when, and then we always kept ignoring what, what they wanted. And probably a couple of thoughts from, from either, either of you, like, you know, be that historical, be that realpolitik, be that own experiences. See, it's it's 2022 now. So um, this marks around about 20 years since um, President Putin actually spoke to the German people and to the German Congress, that is uh, Bundestag, I think in 2001. And I think it's a really interesting take on in history that maybe the Russians actually imagined the German-Russian relationship, especially to um, to have a different how do you say, to take on a different reality. And I think uh, especially the German-Russian relation has always been one that's been very, like, aside from the wars, aside from World War II especially, Germany and Russia actually had some peaceful coexistence. Um, for those of you listeners who are historically interested, there's the so-called miracle of the Brandenburg House, which is um, 
in the mid 1700s when uh, Frederick the Great actually was about to lose Prussia and when when the forces of I think Tsar Catherine were about to move on to Potsdam, um, they somehow stopped. And then when Tsar Peter came in as her successor, Tsar Peter was the greatest fanboy, basically, of uh, Frederick the Great. So for no logical reason, somehow Russia let Prussia live. And even in the decades after that, Russia was always a part of this European pentarchy. And I think what's a really interesting take on history is that we used to have this pentarchy up to World War One. Um, we didn't have that anymore after that. You know, as Christian said, um, the Americans rewrote the rules, and the Americans did not have to. Um, they didn't have to live with consequences. Like um, to say it frankly, America saved Europe from Nazism in the thirties and four, basically in the forties. Um, America rewrote the rules, um, gave Western Europe um, a chance for economical redevelopment uh, with the Marshall Plan, even though nowadays historians are more like, yeah, that was that was a catalyst, but not really the main driving force. Like Europeans actually knew how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, but the German-Russian relationship has always been kind of a fruitless one. And now suddenly... I have the impression that it's external factors that make this relationship such a hard one. It's external factors like American policy or like German policy constraints due to NATO membership, due to EU membership, that make it hard for German policy to have any leeway. And I think from an American viewpoint, America always has all the leeway. America can change course on policy like this. Sometimes there's a more lenient course on how Israel and its neighbors treat each other. Then there's like a more um, strict course on that. So America's kind of like guiding, America's choosing the guidelines. Germany is stuck in their guidelines and has been for the last decades. And I think this situation is just, it's just the, the logical consequence of what has been kind of like mm -hmm. a, a divergence between Europe and Russia, because um, in the realpolitik terms, Russia has its sphere of influence, Russia wants its sphere of influence, and while the United States is a country that also has its sphere of influence, which is basically the whole Western world, um, Europe has, somehow has to come to terms that they don't want spheres of influence to exist, but however, they do exist. And what the EU is currently doing with all their, with all the countries that want to join the EU is basically to project power, is um, establishing this kind of zone and sphere of influence. And I think this makes it all such a dangerous situation. And like coming back to Christian's uh, term, the reverse Midas touch, um, I think I think it's a really interesting situation when you look at the fact that kind of all NATO interventions um, took kind of a took kind of a bad course over the last years. Like, uh, Kristen, you mentioned 1999. Um, I think it was like when they when they bombed Belgrade, for example, and the Ministry of Defense in Belgrade. Yeah, of course they made peace. Um, they made peace like in a second, but. I think yesterday or two days ago, there were like 10,000 people in Belgrade demonstrating for uh, Russian President Putin. So I think we somehow try to avoid this whole topic of what's peacemaking, what's peacekeeping, is there any chance of like making peace from, with outside forces? 
And I do think that the underlying factors between Russia and Ukraine are just way too complicated for any of us to just um, step in and to try to force any peace to that. So circling back to to the interesting or to the to the more important thing that we face that we encounter today, um, it's basically this fog of war that I talked about some days ago has now turned to this propaganda war. And now Russia has um, Russia banned all foreign media outlets. Basically, um, you're not allowed to to discuss what's happening right now under the term war. It still has to be this um, precise military intervention. And if you dare speak otherwise, um, you're subject to imprisonment for up to 15 years, I think. Um, Roskomnadzor, which is their Russian um, internet watchdog, they shut down Facebook, they shut down Twitter, they shut down basically all European media outlets, like um, the, the, the guy who's, um, who's the manager of Deutsche Welle, which is the uh, German NPR equivalent for um, foreign countries, was like, yeah, Russian people, um, we cordially invite you to use VPN connections stuff to keep in touch with us. But apart from that, nothing's possible. Like foreign correspondents are like leaving Russia, which is an interesting development because some days ago I was listening to a podcast by an Austrian newspaper where they were talking to their Russia correspondent who's German and they were um the host was asking the journalist so how how are people in moscow taking this invasion and she's like many people don't care at all some people have decided to not say anything anymore and then there's a lot of people who are like yeah finally the ukrainians are getting getting hit in the head basically so i think it's it's kind of a weird situation that we find ourselves in and this whole propaganda war as todd mentioned before we don't really know what's happening like there's heavy shelling there's indiscriminate shelling we see that civilians are being targeted but we do not know whether it's just the russians whether as todd mentioned whether it's like ukrainian forces as well for pr purposes and we also don't know when it comes to the russians is it the russians or like are they violating their own rules of engagement which is something that i can definitely see when it comes to the chechen troops like um, I was talking to some some friends of mine who are like taking a very yeah split view on all this, and they were like, yeah, even though the Russians might or might not mm. have a point in what they do as long as it's surgical, but like literally 100% of people agree that um, taking their Chechen people, like you know the Kadyrov Brigade and all that, into that, it's just like this is going to backfire on Putin, and this is not like if you want to talk to the West. It's definitely not a good choice to bring in your um, your basically jihadi battalions into your that. orcs. Like yeah, yeah. orcs. <laughs> like, these are basically, <laughs> honestly, yes, uh, they're like they're like jihad they're like jihadis who've been stripped of their suicide vests. Um, so I think, like, if Putin actually wants to get back to any uh, table for negotiations, this has to stop. But I don't want to make any predictions because last week I would have predicted that he takes. Kiev in a surgical operation. Um, I would have thought that by today, uh, Vladimir Zelensky would have been uh, sitting in the cage next to Michael Kordokovsky in some court. Um, gladly, all that did not happen. Like, uh, cheers to my predictions not coming out of the way they, they were supposed to. But we do have some matters to talk mm -hmm. about. So I think um, this is where I'd like to end this uh, monologue 
Christian mentioned before that American foreign policy has always been protected by two oceans and two um, somewhat peaceful countries. Um, yeah, like America does not have to take in all the refugees that are coming now. And I think it's the the EU or the International Office for Migration was referring to this being the biggest migratory movement since World War II within Europe. And I think this is going to be very interesting how it's going to play out because I do see a lot of solidarity with people. I also see, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of people thinking that all Russians are bad now. So I think we're kind of like headed for very difficult times. Todd, um, mm -hmm. thank, thank you, Lucas. Todd, probably just the initial thought before we dive into the propaganda war and things that are patently untrue or that, pat that are patently different from any other war just uh, your thoughts uh, mm -hmm. uh what i will say is i i i do have some sympathy uh and again i'm not excusing the invasion but i i do believe moving nato to russia's borders is a huge mistake i don't think the us has any any business in ukraine it's the russian sphere of influence i mean last time you mentioned cuba and we still have sanctions well we had possible missiles 90 miles off our coast and we started world war three almost so uh, this is put yourself in the russian shoes where Zelensky wanted to bring nuclear weapons possibly into ukraine uh there are talks of biolabs we're trying to run that down and get some confirmation they did exist because the kiev embassy the u.s embassy did take that off their website uh the different labs they were running in country so I'm still, I still want to know what was in Putin's mind when he said, yes, we're going to invade. I still want to find that nugget over time. Uh, I do want to say that this is a pawn in a much bigger scheme uh, with the information war, and maybe this is a segue into uh, what we're gonna talk about, but the, the information war is raging, and this is all about re removing Putin from office. So the Ukrainians are being used. There is obvious coordination among the Western and globalist media. Uh, and that is the goal is to get rid of Putin. Uh, and, uh, you know, th this is just another another battle in that uh, global war uh, that we've seen on Trump, on everyone else. Thank you. Before I hand mm -hmm. over to Lucas, where Lucas will walk us through the, mm -hmm. the most interesting incidences of blatant mm -hmm. uh, propaganda war. Probably one thought. I mean, one guy that over the last couple of weeks has emerged as a superstar and his take on all of this is John mm -hmm. Mearsheimer, the mm -hmm. international relations uh, um, scholar. And I think, and even though I'm probably putting word, words in his mouth, but um, I'm, I'm just going to do it. Um, in, in a way, if I'm thinking in a Mearsheimer-esque fashion, is there's a uniting element why Western um, interventions always go bad and why the immigration into the West, particularly Western Europe, has grown woefully bad over the last decades. And we think all people or cultures are different. So, hey, we just need numbers, birth rates low, let's plug in culture X, Y, Z. Or if we're gonna react in a certain way, let's assume the other side is gonna react that way. It doesn't work that way. And well, in, in all fairness, in in the, the Cuban example, we would have probably reacted in exactly the same way. So that might be actually one of the bits where they are not quite so foreign to us after all. And only John Mearsheimer always says he always enjoys being in China because suddenly he feels like 
talking to 19th century people like himself, as he always jokingly says. And he's like, whereas we are coming from this relativist 21st century kind of thinking, and that's what he enjoys. But that, that's probably a bit of a tangent. Lucas, just walk us through what's going on in the weird propaganda thing. Well, I think the the thing I need to start with is Lindsey Graham being like, why can't there be any successful Stauffenberg um, in Putin's entourage? And I think this this kind of like th this came in so surprising. This came in as like the, in my opinion, um, the most disgusting um, statement of the week because. Christian always refers to uh, Putin either being, the, maybe possibly being the dam that's holding back um, even weirder forces. And regardless of whether he is or not, I do not think that assassinating any political leader is going to be the solution for that, even though it does say a lot about Lindsey Graham's political points of view when it comes to that. Um, regarding real propaganda, we've all talked about um, these uh, Ukrainian people on Snake Island who are like, you know, um, Russian uh, Russian warship, uh, GTFO, basically. And they're like, oh, yeah, they all died uh, as heroes. And some days later, it turns out they're all healthy and well, but they're, well, prisoners of war. So this, this all plays out as something like... People just look at their frame. People just look at what they want to see. And I think one of the um, most interesting um, statements, just because it was from someone who you would actually suppose is an expert in that, was Michael McFall, who used to be uh, the US ambassador to Russia. And he mentioned that there's no such thing as innocent Russians now. And I think this plays into the whole the whole scheme that mainstream media used to be like, yeah, not all Muslims. You know, when there's like when there's people um when there's people cheering for all these weird um honor killings and stuff and like for I know that we're not big New York Times people here, but uh they actually brought up a really good, even though disgusting video, it's called The Killing of Farkunda. It's like a 10-minute video uh, where they're showing how a woman who wanted to be a Quran scholar um, was killed in broad daylight, um, was burned alive, was like, they did the worst thing to that. And even in this scenario, uh, we as Westerners are supposed to say, yeah, not all these people are bad. But right now, it seems like all Russians need to be bad. So this um, kind of plays into the narrative of like all Russians support Putin. And this is what I mentioned before. Like we see in Germany that many people um, with from Russian descent now have to justify their heritage and all that. And I think I think it's kind of kind of bad thing. And last thing that's worth mentioning um i think for for american viewers or listeners this might be pretty interesting in germany there's no such thing um as wanting an armed citizenry um german left parties hate the idea of arming your own people because the second amendment was after all um not just directed against foreign powers but it's also directed against your own government going rogue against you and in the eyes of german left policy, a government can never be rogue. A government's always right. You know, for some reason, 
for some reason, Ernst Busch, um, a German communist singer and poet, um, wrote this title, Die Partei hat immer recht, which is the party is always right, the socialist unity party. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, German leftists are now cheering for people in Ukraine being armed. And now keep in mind that even German domestic um, domestic security services are actually warning of the situation at hand, which is people are being armed with weapons that are very well um, going to disappear after this um, invasion is over one way or the other. Um, you have right-wing extremist battalions who are like part of the Ukrainian National Guard, like the Azov Battalion. Um, you have German right-wing extremists who are actually highly sympathetic with the Azov Battalion, which is heavily armed and has around about 3,000 soldiers under arms. And here we are in Germany being like, oh yeah, we're really happy that the Azov Battalion is saving, uh, is, is part of defending Ukraine, and yeah, just about these few German right-wing extremists who might actually go to Ukraine and who might actually learn how to how to fight their own fight. And like, keep in mind, um, there has been a lot of alleged right-wing terrorism in Germany over the last years. Um, it's really interesting how German leftist politicians uh, throw all their principles overboard as long as it serves their own purpose just for some weeks. Thank you, uh, Lucas. Um, Todd, probably some of your thoughts before we round um, this episode off with with a, um, a minor appeal from from my side. Um, interesting. One interesting piece is that which kind of ties history all together. In in the in the uh, in World War Two, there there's a and I'm not pronouncing it right, but there's a region of uh, Western Ukraine. Uh, I think it's. Halichnia or something like that. Uh, the, the this was uh, the Germans, the the Nazi Waffen SS created a battalion there, which Ukrainians volunteered for and fought with the Germans, uh, not just the Germans but the Nazi Party there. And uh, there was a lot of executions of locals. Well, the Ukrainian negotiating delegation, we ran this story yesterday, who showed up uh, to negotiate with the Russians all were wearing air halichnia uh, like the german ss air squadron jackets when they showed up um so that will not be reported in the mainstream press i guarantee you <laughs> so uh you know so those are uh it's kind of just a part of the whole propaganda war uh not even propaganda war but lack of reality lack of telling what's going on on the ground in the media because that doesn't fit their narrative at all uh, that there is a, 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 a very alive uh, Nazi movement within Ukraine. About 25% of the population sympathize with that uh, ideology. So that being said, um, uh, I'm hopeful that this can lead to a negotiated settlement. Ukraine can be a neutral country, uh, remove Russian troops, find some way to get some reparations. Uh, but we also have to get rid of the corruption inside Ukraine from the globalist uh, Soros connection. Uh, that's of prime importance. Oh, thank you, Todd. And um, I think um, just over the next coming of uh, over the next coming weeks, I'm quite sure as you get removed from the total sensory overload that you've been under the last couple. Of years, I'm sure we'll have plenty more interesting stories that you hadn't even uh, thought about. I mean, it's just kind of sure. always how how our brains uh, work. So, so thank you so much for actually going there and and putting your um, your body where your mouth well mouth uh, mouth is. 
um, in terms of um, you know trying to to show the truth um, at, at your, your own peril. And um, probably like a couple of parting thoughts. So first of all, um, the interesting thing about propaganda, and probably my minor appeal was from people: whenever a war starts, just don't really believe anything that you're seeing. I mean, it's propaganda from both sides. But there is one interesting thing. Sometimes propaganda, overt propaganda, exposes other, other propaganda and sort of a, a tale that would have been disregarded a couple of years ago as uh, conspiracy theory. Now it's like, oh, by the way, yeah, the Russians did fund N German NGOs against nuclear power. Oh, they, they did sort of fund NGOs against fracking. So the, that was like, oh, by the by, just thrown in. So I find that really interesting. Sometimes seeing overt propaganda um, makes other interesting propaganda rise to the top. For the European viewers, it's really interesting to see Germany actually providing arms being cheered on. It's interesting enough to see Germany cheered on reaching its 2% GDP target that was sneered at when President Trump was the one asking for it. Lucas already mentioned suddenly European leftists cheer a armed citizenry. And um, in terms of the double standard, you're um, hearing talks about Putin needing to go in front of the, the Hague criminal court, um, whereas Tony Blair got knighted earlier this year by Her Majesty the Queen, as I'm very sad to say. And interesting enough, Justin Trudeau ended his state of emergency before going on television and criticizing Putin for cracking down on human rights, free speech, uh, freedom of assembly, I mean, it doesn't get any better than this, and it would probably be really, really funny if the situation on the ground in Ukraine wasn't so sad. And I think this is where we can round off today's episode as the fog of war ever so slightly uh, clears. We hope very soon to make another episode and see what's going on. And again, we're at this podcast, we want to peel back historical and contemporary roots um, of the onion. and. Uh, well, thank you for being with us today and hopefully see you soon. Take care.